Nicolette Han Nyman and Bill Nyman, welcome to the new school. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Nicolette and Bill are neighbors of Commonweal. Um, we're going to be talking with uh, Nicolette a lot about her new book, Righteous Pork Chop, Finding a Life in Good Food Beyond Factory Farms. Um, Bill has been a neighbor of Commonweal since uh, Commonweal's inception. And uh, so uh, uh, Nicolette and Bill's cattle graze on the Commonweal land. Uh, when I bicycle to work in the morning, sometimes I'm chased by large white dogs along the fence line that uh, guard their, uh, their livestock. Uh, one time, one of these large white dogs got outside the fence and chased me on my bike, and I was uh, terrified, actually, to tell you the truth. Um, and uh, this is an extraordinary book. Uh, what Bill and Nicolette have done uh, with the ranch is uh, really an amazing piece of work that, that reflected in the book. Um, so what we're going to do today is we're going to start in a few minutes with a 20-minute slideshow that Nicolette and Bill have put together that will give you a sense of their work. But of all the things that Nicolette does, many of which are reflected in this extraordinary book, one thing she doesn't mention in the book is that she is a, an extraordinary singer. She has a very beautiful voice. And so uh, I asked Nicolette uh, if she would be willing to start this afternoon with a song. So, uh, this makes me incredibly nervous because I don't do these two things together normally. <laughs> I sing and I do this stuff, but I don't do them together. So this is the first time this is going to happen. And also I'm usually accompanied by instruments, so, so forgive me if it isn't perfect. I'm just going to sing a song that, um, actually I was trying to think of what to sing and I decided to uh, sing Miles' favorite song. And it's a uh, song that many of you are probably familiar with. It's uh, an old Irish tune that actually, um, apparently, William Butler Yeats uh, made, wrote it down, but it had been around for a long time before that. And it's an older man looking back on his youth and talking about it with some regret. Down by the Sally Garden, my love and I did meet. She passed the Sally Garden on little snow-white feet. She bid me take love easy as the leaves grow on the tree. But I was young and foolish and with her did not agree. In a field by the stand and on my leaning shoulder she laid her little hand she bid me take life easy as 
the grass grows on the hills. But I was young and foolish, and now am full of tears. What a beautiful song. <laughs> so now you can relax, right? <laughs> yes. Definitely the hardest part of today for me. Yeah. Okay. And I didn't know that William Butler Yeats wrote that down, that it was a... Oh, uh, Apparently he met an older Irish woman that taught it to him, mm -hmm. and he recorded it and maybe tweaked the wording a little bit. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yes. Right. For those of you who don't know the poetry of William Butler Yeats and are looking around for some great poetry to read. It's just astonishing. So uh, let me commend the poetry of William Butler Yeats to all of you. Remains a great favorite. So, Nicolette and Bill, we're going to uh, hear you talk about your work accompanied by a slideshow. Uh, remember that the recording uh, may or may not include people seeing the slides. So to the degree that you can speak as if people weren't seeing the slides, that, that would help. So we don't, uh, Bill and I both do a lot of public speaking, but rarely together. So we each have a way that we've never, so this is a first as well, <laughs> kind of doing it as a team. So we'll see how it goes. Um, the first slide is of someone that we both know very well. It is um, a... Uh, a pig farmer in Thornton, Iowa, which is a couple of hours north of Des Moines. And I always like to start with this slide because, as I was saying to Michael before we got started, um, both of us uh, are very dedicated to the idea that the current system of raising animals for food is unsustainable and inhumane and desperately needs to be changed. But what we really like people to think about is the possibility, the change possibility, not so much the current system. We're going to talk and show a little bit about the current system, but our emphasis is the possibility for a different system. And this to me, and to, I'm sure Bill would feel the same way, is, is a perfect example of the type of a farm where a righteous pork chop would come from. Yeah. So. Actually, a very important thing to note on, the, on this slide is uh, that man in the picture is Paul Willis, who was the first hog farmer that I began to work with in Iowa, which is sort of the epicenter of pork production in the United States. And with Paul, we established a network of uh, almost 700 family-owned farms raising hogs in this manner in 10 states, uh, which corresponds to the Corn Belt. So Paul was hog farmer number one, and he still is with uh, Nyman Ranch Incorporated managing that part of the enterprise, the hog part of the enterprise. So a few things before we, we won't spend this much time on every slide, but um, this is such an important picture. Some of the things we love about this is, first of all, it's grass-based farming. We feel that all animals um, really ideally should be on grass as much as possible. Pigs are very similar to humans in terms of their nutritional needs and their digestive system, so they're really omnivores but they benefit tremendously from grass. And a lot of times, even in traditional pig farming, they were just kept on sort of a dirt lot, but really the ideal system for raising pigs has always been to raise them on grass. And they get a lot of um, nutrients, they get vitamins, and they get fiber from the grass. And they also, just by being out on grass, 
uh, they are exercising. And you'll see a lot of more pictures of pigs being raised like this. And consequently lead a much longer life. And they're productive for five to 10 years and therefore get larger than what's happening in the industry today. Right, so that's a big sow. <laughs> yeah. That is a big sow. And we love as well this notion that there's a very strong relationship between this human and this animal. And we believe that that is the essence of good animal husbandry. Humans taking good care of their animals, knowing their animals and taking good care of them. This is a picture, I'm gonna show a few slides now that are from uh, uh, farms in the United States that are not that long ago. They're mostly sort of in the earlier part of the 20th century, but not that long ago. And this is one of them. This is from a hog farm in the Midwest. Um, and this shows a hut that would be, you know, out in pasture. There would be a number of these. You, you can um, only see this one in this picture, but there would be a number of these out in the field. And this is a shelter that especially the sows might use for um, giving birth to their young. And um, again, you can see that they're grazing, but they'll go into the shelter when they need it. Um, this is a picture of a traditional uh, chicken farm. And again, you can see they're not crowded. They're out on grass. They have access to you know, a lot of room, uh, a lot of fresh air, and they have a little shelter there for shade when they want it. And presumably, they went into a barn at night. That would almost always be the case because of predator protection. But other than that, they're outside. Do you want to chime in on any of these slides? Uh, well, I think it's important to note that, and, and Nicolette does, deals with this beautifully in her book, and in the process of writing the book, Nicolette did a little bit, a lot of research, and I got to share in that research, and both in discussion and reading, and the entire country was uh, populated with small flocks of chickens, so, and especially in the Petaluma area, actually. But, but there are millions of flocks of chickens like this in the United States. And the result today is probably a few thousand operations. So they've all been kind of concentrated into fewer and You're much larger. You're jumping way ahead in the presentation, okay. my okay. love. Okay. <laughs> Going out so of chronological our order. Voyage. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but yes, this is a typical flock. This is actually kind of big for a, a chicken flock um, earlier in the... T this is probably someone who really was doing quite a bit of poultry by the standards of the day um, because a typical flock might have had one or 200 birds, so this looks like a bigger flock. But it's important to note that almost every single farm, about three-quarters of the farm in this country, had chicken flocks on them in the up until up until the mid 20th century and the same thing is true with dairy cows more than 70 percent of u.s farms had at least one dairy cow because it would provide their own dairy needs and then probably some extra for the neighbors but it was that's how a lot of dairy farming was done um, up until very uh, very recently and a typical dairy farm up until about the 1950s had 25 25 cows on it, <laughs> okay? Very different from now. We'll talk about that in more detail in a minute. One this more is, thing I would say that th these poultry operations were really the inspiration for what we're doing today. And I hope I'm not stealing your thunder, but we, one of our goals in having our breeding flock of heritage or old breed turkeys was to create baby turkeys that we could populate other small farms uh, in the area. We could provide the young turkeys for them to grow out, which is typical in what you see in these poultry operations where somebody hatches them and then other people grow them out. So we're hoping to kind of restore that sensible way of raising poultry. 
So you're really going out of chronological order, but that's okay. <laughs> this is another uh, another model. A of linear mind versus a random stream <laughs> that's of consciousness. True, that's true. <laughs> I'm a lawyer. I think very linearly. <laughs> Bill, not at all. No more. Actually, Bill was in law school for a year and left, so that he couldn't handle. It's too linear. Okay. So this is another um, another. Um, chicken farm. And again, you can see they're outdoors on grass, not just outside, but on grass. That's a really important difference. And they have the building to go into at night for safety. Um, this is one of my favorite pictures because this is so extremely opposite from today. Um, the chicken ones are as well, but this one really strikes me because we're raising turkeys ourselves now. These are turkeys, and they lived outside, as you can see. And I love the, uh, the caption here. This is a, a photograph from Maine. And it says, uh, good range condition, shade, no crowding, plenty of roosting space. You know, it's kind of understood this is what needed to be done. And this is a photograph that was probably from the 1930s. And the most interesting thing about this photograph is not just that they're outside and they're out on grass, but they're dark. You see how they're all dark? Every single turkey in the United States now today that you buy in a grocery store, unless it is, you can be sure that it's a heritage turkey, is a white turkey, and it's a single breed called the broad-breasted white. And that is the turkey that a lot of you have heard the horror stories about. As they get older, they're raised in extremely crowded conditions. And as they get older, they've been bred so much for the breast size that they have very hard time even standing upright. They tend to fall forward. They're totally incapable of flight, and the most shocking thing is they're incapable of natural reproduction. All modern turkeys are um, mated through artificial insemination, unless you get a heritage turkey. So there's a, there, it's a very different animal, totally different animals. The conditions are different, the feeding is different, and the animal itself is different. This was before those days. <laughs> so this is how they were. And you can see in the lower left corner are the dogs that were guarding against both human theft and predators. Interesting fact that the, that broad-breasted white turkey was developed in Sonoma County. So the prominent turkey in the world today uh, was created, if you will, in Sonoma County. But it's gotten worse over the generations. I mean, we don't know that the people that were originally developing it, you know, would approve of its current form, but it definitely is a troubling situation. Now, we're just going to show a few pictures of what it looks like today in the modern uh, animal, livestock, and poultry industry. And most of you probably have seen pictures like this before, but maybe some of you haven't, so it's good to quickly review. And I suspect it's a world that very few of you have actually experienced firsthand because right. it's really behind closed doors and there's a, a barrier uh, sometimes under the guise of biosecurity, and, but basically the industry does not want people to see how their food is being produced because it would really, I think it would turn people off so much that they would stop eating it. So. And, this, and these are not these are you root these are regular these are not extreme examples in any way. These are very yeah. um, typical pictures. Mm -hmm. You'll see none of them are inflammatory. These are pictures you could walk into an operation any day and see, and take these pictures. Um, both Bill and I have been in quite a few confinement um, animal operations because of our work. And Bill was for two and a half years on the National Commission um, founded by the Pew Foundation that went around and looked at a lot of operations all over the country. And so he's actually very recently been in a lot of places like this. This is actually an egg-laying operation. Um, it's, you see how there are multiple layers. These are called battery cages. There are typically six to nine birds per cage, and they're typically stacked five high. 
and the birds will literally defecate onto the birds below them. Um, and they're on wire grating their entire lives. So almost all of them have deformed feet like that because they can't do that. They just can't tolerate it. This is a very typical confinement dairy. Now, we were talking a few moments ago about how the typical uh, dairy was about 25 cows just about 50 years ago. And that, that was centered in the upper Midwest. And those were animals that were mostly out on pasture for much of the year. When the dairy industry started in California, which, is, which has been the leading dairy state in the country for several years now, uh, it was a totally different model. And although there are grass-based dairies in the state of California, most, dairies, most dairy production by far in California is a typical confinement dairy where the animals are never out on grass um, except for when they're briefly, when they're growing heifers, when they're calves, they're not, and when they're adults, they're not. But that brief period of time, they typically are on grass. But the rest of the time, they'll be on a cement floor like this. They may have an outside dirt area. Some of them don't. But, um, and they'll just be there for their entire lives, never grazing, never going outside. Now, these could be organic, too. So I think most people in their mind's eye have a vision of organic being this pastoral scene where the cattle are actually eating grass. It's, in most cases, it's not, it's very far from the reality. Mm -hmm. Right, unfortunately, the organic standards are not uh, perfect and one of their flaws is they don't clearly mandate pasture even for grazing animals, which is really troubling, okay. This is um, a typical, very typical pig operation. These are young weanlings. They've been recently weaned. You can see they're on a graded floor. Again, they're never outside, they're never on dirt. Um, that uh, graded floor allows the manure and urine to go beneath where they're standing. It's collected there and it's periodically pumped outside into, in, depending on the location, often into an open air lagoon, which is a big pond of liquefied manure. So they're continually breathing the fumes, um, mostly ammonia and hydrogen sulfide from, from the uh, manure, which is why um, respiratory illnesses are rampant among workers. 30% of the workers have chronic respiratory illnesses, and the pigs have a problem with that, uh, so much so that they're continually fed antibiotics in order to stave off that disease. Now, I think it's important to note that 99% of the pork produced in this country and perhaps the world today this is how it's done. Right. So this is not... This is totally... This is what it looks like. This is what the pork that you get in any typical grocery store or any restaurant, this is what it looks like, unless it says it's from Nyman Ranch or something like that. Okay. This is the same um, group of pigs, but a little bit older. Uh, they, they get more and more crowded as they get bigger. They typically are in the same size pen. Sometimes they're moved around a little bit, but for the most part, they just get more and more crowded. They can barely move by the time they're big enough to go to slaughter. Um, this is the worst situation in the entire animal industry. This is the way the sows are kept. Last November, you might remember Proposition 2 was on the ballot. Eventually, this is outlawed in the state of California. Unfortunately, very little pork is produced in California. So the vast majority of pork is still produced this way. Um, the sows are continually kept in these metal cages that are so narrow they cannot turn around or even lie down without rubbing against the metal bars. You can see some of the sores on their bodies from rubbing against the metal bars. This is another view of the same thing. They are in this 24 hours a day. Now, phew, okay, phew, that's over with. Okay, now we don't have to think about that anymore. Let's think about the good stuff, okay? 
That's what the industry looks like. Now, what we want to show you for pretty much the rest of the time, what we think it can look like and what some of it does look like right now. This is another view of um, and action. And what it looked like not too long ago. Right. And that's how we start out with the historical photographs. In our lifetime. These so. things that we're showing you that we believe are possible are actually in our recent history in this country. They're not that far away. Um, this is also from Paul Willis's farm in Thornton, Iowa. Now, this picture I include in the um, show because it's important to note that although uh, I, the ideal situation is to have them outside, um, in some geographies you have a long winter or you may have topography that isn't ideal for having them out on grass. And this is another good system. They're, it's open air. It's deep bedding straw, so there's composting of the manure. You don't liquefy the manure. You don't have the fumes. You don't have the environmental problems from the manure or the odor or the animal health problems. And you, and you have a much better welfare state because these animals are able to lie down in, in the soft bedding, and they're also able to root in the bedding so they have things to occupy their minds and their bodies. This is a pig playing outside in the snow. Both Bill and I have encountered often the statement from the agribusiness industry that you have to put the pigs inside because of the winter and things like that. Pigs actually love being outside. They need to have shelter when in, during the winter available, but they'll be outside as much as they can be. And do you want to say something about the anatomy of the pig, the physiology? Well, it's, what, it's important to note from, for, from an eating quality point of view, and we're very concerned about that, that these animals should taste good. But the pigs regulate their body temperature with a layer of fat just beneath their skin, and that they cool themselves in the winter and in the summer. And in, keep themselves keep them, They keep themselves warm in the winter and cool themselves in the summer. They don't have sweat glands, and they don't have any fur, so they're totally dependent upon that. And there's a direct correlation between the actual eating quality of the pig and the fat. So fat equals flavor and, inner, and succulents, whereas the modern industry, because people have stopped cooking in lard and have literally bred the fat out of the animal because they've moved them into climate-controlled environments, that you, uh, they're right, the pigs that the modern pig that's been created to thrive indoors and not have any extra fat or any fat at all is, uh, well, basically could not live outdoors. So they, they, that's how they justify uh, the, their thought and their message that pigs cannot live outdoors. They need to be in the buildings and therefore they can justify confining them under the situations that we saw earlier. But in fact, if pigs... Uh, if you use more traditional breeds, which happen to taste a lot better, they do thrive outdoors in summer and winter. Uh, this is a picture from a farm in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Again, a sow and her babies. There's a, there was a thousand sows on that farm. And so it's not, <laughs> a, it's not like a farm with one animal. I mean, one of the things that we often have to respond to is the scale and how are you going to feed the hungry masses of the world and... And you might think by looking at that picture that is just somebody who has provided a beautiful and perfect environment for one animal. But in fact, that farm has a thousand sows. That was a good-sized farm. This is also, this is, again, this is, we have a lot of pictures of the Willis Farm just because we've been there so many times and, um, and we're good friends with them. Uh, but uh, there are over 600 farmers that make up the Nyman Ranch Network and they look, all the farms look similar to this. This is another picture of the Willis Farm. And this is a sow with her uh, babies in the morning sun. Now, this picture is interesting because uh, I've shown this to people where they said, oh, grass-fed pork.
pork. <laughs> and uh, it's true, as I said, they love to graze, but this is not what she's doing here. She is not eating this grass, she's building a nest. And a pig is extremely strongly driven to build a nest, just like a bird. And that's what she's doing here. <laughs> and there, there were two very interesting experiments, one in uh, Sweden and one in Scotland, where they actually took pigs that had been raised in confinement for many generations, and they released them into large, wild areas and observed them for years. Scientists did this. And they were astonished that even though these pigs had been raised in confinement, and even in the crates that you saw a few minutes ago, that they had this incredibly intense desire to build a nest, and every single sow began building nests as soon as they were outside again. So what that tells you is when they're confined in those cages, they're experiencing extreme frustration and stress, and, and it just tells you the extent of the deprivation of keeping them in a cage like that. One of the, one of the things I really like about this, this picture is, and, and, and whenever we describe what, what does natural mean, so uh, what is natural pork, well, to me, an animal has to be able to realize its instinctive needs and be able to thrive and do whatever it's driven to, to do instinctively. And you cannot, it's not possible for a sow to realize her genetic and instinctive needs living on concrete and steel. And this is a, a sow in, inside, in one of those open, uh, deep bedded straw systems. She as well will build a nest using the straw. Um, this is a farm that we are familiar with in upstate New York that raises uh, poultry outside in grass. They move this around. These are mobile electric fences and a little, you can see that shelter is very mobile. And they graze during the day and, I, and they're guarded by dogs as well. That keeps away the predators. This is a dairy farm that we have been to many times called the Klesig family in Wisconsin. And the reason I show this particular slide is again, the idea that it has to be, the animals have to be inside in a winter environment is often brought up. The Klesig family actually keeps their animals outdoors all year. They have access to a shelter. The cows always have access to shelter. That's important. But we, we were there with a group one time, and a woman in the group said, oh, well, in the winter, of course, you keep them in the barn. And he said, oh, no. Our cows never go inside. <laughs> he said, not unless it's a driving rain for several days or a blizzard. He said, they're always, they always want to be outside. And so that's where they are. And this is one of the largest dairies in the state of Wisconsin. So again, this is not uh, a backyard farm operation. This is a real, they have 450 fresh cows, which means they milk 450 cows a day. This is Bill and Paul Willis on our ranch. Of course, they started Nyman Ranch together, as Bill was explaining. Nyman Ranch pork, yeah. This is the um, front of our ranch. These pictures aren't as interesting for you guys because you see this every day. <laughs> Usually, uh, you know, people, I'm showing this in Iowa or Michigan or something, and this is, so you've actually seen all these photographs. This is our ranch. This is Bill uh, feeding. The only thing our cattle are ever fed, this is very important, they eat naturally occurring vegetation. We don't irrigate, we don't plant, we don't plow. We use no chemicals on the land at all, no fertilizers, no pesticides, no herbicides, and we do not irrigate. So it's incredibly important to understand that all they're eating is naturally occurring vegetation, with one exception, and that's we give them during the dry season a small amount of hay. Now we've, um, we're gonna have questions at the end. Um, we have, um, uh, calculated that about less than 1% of their diet is from hay that we bring in. This is me. Again, I show this in Michigan and Iowa stuff to prove that I actually do this stuff. <laughs> so, and there's me moving some cattle on horseback. This is my favorite cow, Girlfriend. Some of you might have read the article in The Citizen that was just in there the other day about her daughter died, unfortunately, the other day, and we wrote a story about it. Um, 
These are a few pictures of uh, mother-calf pairs. All of this is from our ranch. And you can see that we favor the black baldy, which is the cross of the black Angus, and the Hereford. And these are all on, all on our ranch. Mm -hmm. And this was an, orf an orphan that we had a few years ago that we um, had to raise by hand. This was another calf uh, that was very tame. Um, not an orphan, though. Now, here are some pictures of our new enterprises. This is, uh, Bill was talking about our turkeys. We're raising heritage breed turkeys. We, we believe very, very, very strongly that animals should be able to do their natural functions um, on their own without human intervention. And so we had to do heritage turkeys as opposed to the regular turkeys because they can um, fly, they can walk, run, and mate. So this is a baby turkey about three days old. And this was, um, this was shortly after we started putting them outside. We kept them inside when they were young. Um, they, they're not uh, big enough to defend themselves against raccoons and such. But eventually, we, were, we started putting them outside every day. And this is a picture of Bill with them. And they started grazing. And you can see one of the dogs right there. We have two dogs. Um, it was not actually one of our dogs that changed, chased Michael down the road, but they are, uh, they are there. Uh, they guard the turkeys really well. And this picture was just taken about three weeks ago. Those are the same animals that were in the earlier slide. We were also doing goats. We, are, we have, don't, do not have goats right now, but we've been doing this seasonally. And these are raised from meat, the boar and Spanish breeds, um, which are good breeds for meat. And this is also on our ranch. And then I'm just, a few pictures here of a cow that we had a couple years ago that rejected her calf. Um, we, uh, this was a first calf heifer. This was her first calf. And she was injured during the birth, and she didn't want to raise this calf. And so we brought her into the corrals, and we started putting her in this squeeze chute every day, which is where you put them normally if you're giving them vaccines or you have to cut something, you have to get something out of their hoof or whatever. And um, you see the calf is over here nursing. This is the only way we could get her to let the calf nurse. So we decided to try to make this a pleasant experience for the mother. So we gave her alfalfa hay, and we brushed her every time she was in there. And eventually, over time, she did accept this calf. But, um, and here we were milking her as well, which we would give to the calf in a bottle um, in between the nursings, because we, we only did that twice a day because it was extremely time consuming. The reason I show this picture of, of the calf and the, and the cow in this tell the story, Edna and Edie, are the name of the pair, um, is because we believe that a farm should take this kind of care of animals, should know their animals, and should give individual care when needed to the individual animals. And you cannot do this on a large scale, on an industrial operation with uh, manual hired workers. Um, this is our dog, Claire, and she became very protective of this calf. And she became so protective that we had to stop letting her go in there because she would uh, start barking viciously at the cow whenever she came near the calf <laughs> because she had seen the way the cow had treated her, the calf and did not like it. Um, this is us on our ranch. And the final picture is one that, that was Miles, and he was already... He's fighting for the cause already. <laughs> uh, that was when he was only two months old, and you've seen him now. He's, uh, he's seven months. So that's our slideshow, and it did Wonderful. go a little over time, but I was no, trying to go great. really fast <laughs> so that we'd have time much. to talk. <laughs> well, starting with Miles, just for a moment, um, uh, isn't it true, I've heard, but you tell me if it's true, that uh, Miles' birth, in addition to being such a joy for the two of you, is significant in terms of the ranch, because doesn't that give you a right to keep the ranch, which is in the National <laughs> Park, for 
a whole other generation? Does it work that way? Not necessarily, no. No? <laughs> no, but it's, it, there's so many other upsides to miles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, then, I, I had heard that, so yeah. uh, I'm glad it's to dispel that rumor. The rumor on the rumor. street. Yeah. <laughs> so, but but the, the ranch is in the Point Reyes National Seashore. That's correct, yeah. So do you have a lifetime... Uh, it's a combination of things. We have a life estate on the original 206 acres that Orville and I owned together. Mm -hmm. And, okay, and then we uh, we lease uh, surrounding six to eight hundred acres, including the, the ground surrounding the Commonwealth World Headquarters, and uh, so we have a five-year lease on that portion of what we use today. And uh, in, in recent conversations with them, they indicated that Nicolette would be able to continue on after Orville and my life's unfortunate crossing over to, after our demise, mm -hmm. and uh, we're going to try and hold them to that, or Nicolette will. Mm -hmm. yeah. Good. And, and also, um, do you have other leased land beyond the land right around your ranch well, right now? Well, when, when I was active in Nyman Ranch prior to leaving several years ago, we had a, a several, we owned a, a ranch in Idaho where we fed and finished cattle, and then we rented, we had a 30-year uh, lease on a malt ranch up in the Chileno Valley, which is mm -hmm. an excellent ranch. And, uh, well, one of the reasons that I left Nyman Ranch is that, that the, the current management didn't feel it was important to wear those hats. They were more interested, they were meat guys, not ranch, farm and ranch people. And of course, we came from, you know, Orville and I, we wanted to find it, we wanted to sell the animals that we were raising hopefully for what it costs to raise, and consequently we got in the meat business as opposed to getting in the ranching business from the meat side. Right. So, but all of that is now, uh, uh, there's, we're, we're focused here entirely. <coughs> we uh, continue to foster our relationships with people we've met along the journey, and many of them are at kind of best of breed. They, they're, they're the best at what they do, whether it's raising cattle, sheep, or uh, hogs and in our new enterprise, which is in the early stages, we are going to kind of reassemble kind of the best components of Nyman Ranch, and it'll be Bill and Nicolette's ranch, the Ian Ranch. Yeah, wonderful. And where do you sell the uh, the meat uh, that you're raising now? What's your distribution network like? Well, I've, we've kind of cherry-picked some of the distributors that we've worked with in the past, and what we're doing now is much of it's modeling a business for the future, so we don't have that much. Mm -hmm. The turkey, you know, so we're not doing very much coast-to-coast -coast mm -hmm. other than continuing to serve a few chefs that are kind of brand builders and trendsetters around the country so that they... Uh, both talk about and experience what we're doing because what kind of drives us is creating the best tasting meat in the world, whatever species, that also has this story about how it's raised, uh, the environmental issues, the family and community issues, animal welfare issues, and the general kind of wholesomeness and food safety of the animals. But really what we're about and what made our brand so strong historically was that it tasted great. And we continue to believe that that's essential to making all these other important, uh, more altruistic things uh, thrive. So at a very practical level, if, if we buy uh, 
Nyman Beef in West Marin. Is it from the company that you started and since have since left because you didn't, as as Nicolette so beautifully describes in here, you didn't like the management practices? Yes. Or are we getting it from your ranch? Well, unfortunately, you're getting it's the it's the stuff stuff that uh, it's coming from the outfit whose management practices mm-hmm. I could no longer mm-hmm. uh, adhere to or sustain, but. Mm-hmm. What we have in the works and the cattle that you see around here Mm -hmm. and what we're doing with a couple other people in the far west is establishing uh, a really great tasting grass-fed beef that will be. But we we have done some experimenting the last 10 years with that. And we're convinced that the cattle have to be raised to an older age and they have to be allowed to get fat. And uh, it takes a minimum of three years to do that. And also animals being harvested off grass, can, that can only be done at a certain time of year, a very narrow window depending on what geography you are in. So here, the animals are at their in prime condition about a month or two months after the rain stops when the grasses are just turning brown and the seeds are, are high in carbohydrates and they can produce a lot of energy and therefore fat, mus- intermuscular fat in the animal. And if you understand the logic of those cycles, you understand that that is when you take the animals. So we're going to offer our grass-fed beef from Bolinas, like a Beaujolais Nouveau offering. So there'll be a seasonal, uh, it'll be offered probably in August of next year will be the first offering. And the animals are grazing here. And there's other animals just like that in this model and this new system in Oregon and in Idaho, uh, although they will come at a different time because... The grasses are at their finest there in a different season. So there'll be perhaps two or three Beaujolais Nouveau offerings. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Can now, I I'd say l- something about the yes, meat, the Nyman Ranch meat, though? <laughs> yeah. I think it's really important to, to say a little more about it because Bill uh, and I both get this question a lot whenever we're talking anywhere. Mm. Um, the, the beef part, th- there are three totally separate parts to the Nyman Ranch Company. One is the beef part, one is the pork part, and one is the lamb part. And um, and Bill had some real concerns about the changes that were made to the way the beef was being produced. The pork and the lamb are totally the same as they always were. So if you're a Nyman Ranch bacon fan, <laughs> you can still go out and buy all you want. <laughs> it comes from a farm like I showed you in those pictures, and you can feel confident about that. And it's really important to make that distinction mm-hmm. because we are very, very supportive of what all those farmers are doing, and we don't want to sound like we're criticizing anything about that part of the mm-hmm. operation. So, Nicolette, I'd like to come back to this okay. book, uh, Righteous Pork Chop, Finding uh, Life and Good Food Beyond Factory Farms. And um, it's got a forward by Robert Kennedy, Jr., and quotes from extraordinary people uh, on the back cover. And, and I read a lot of books. Uh, this is a really remarkable book. Um, one of the things that's remarkable about it is, first of all, that it is a a fascinating insight into the story of what they... You, actually, you never use the term, I don't think, confined animal feeding operations right. or CAFOs, which is the, the term that's most widely used. And one of the beauties of this book is it's so free of jargon of any right. kind. That's why I don't use it, exactly. Yeah. But <laughs> CAFOs, or confined animal feeding operations, is the term that activists use all over the world. And, and so... 
Your story, uh, one aspect of this is your story of how you went from being a city council member in Kalamazoo, Michigan, hearing Robert Kennedy speak, uh, getting asked by him to come work with him, and then being asked to head his new, uh, you know, a hog farming advocacy program nationally, taking that over, uh, and then, uh, you know, taking that national in a major way, uh, and that's how you met Bill, who right. was your sort of golden boy for the campaign, one of the few people in the country that you could hold up right. as doing stuff right. Yep. Then a new executive director comes into Bobby Kennedy's outfit. Right. You and she don't get along really well. Right. You leave, right. and Bill calls you up and says, how about dinner? Right. And, uh, <laughs> That's a very good summary of a lot of you've the book, the book, actually. I've read the but book. But you still have to read the book anyways. Right. <laughs> but, and I have to tell you all that, that, that in addition to being an extraordinary book about the meat industry, this is also a love story. And it's, it's explicitly and deliberately a love story. And the love story aspect of it, for those of you who are neighbors, is a fabulous story. So, uh, you know, there's a scene... Uh, uh, in New York, where uh, they are, where Bill's been uh, courting Nicolette for over a year, very <laughs> graciously and gently. He's 22 years her senior. Patiently, yeah. patiently, <laughs> right? And so there's a scene in 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 New York where they're sitting. Uh, by a lake in Central Park, sipping champagne out of plastic flutes that Bill has brought along for the occasion. And Nicolette finally realizes that this man who's been so uh, thoughtful and kind, she actually, he's pretty darn good looking and uh, he's wearing a black shirt and uh, he just looks all right to her. And so, uh, you know, they, they have a little debate about who asked who to marry whom. And, uh, but but the, the love story aspect of this is, is a really lovely aspect. Uh, and, but more than being a love story just about your relationship with Bill, it really is a, a, also a, a memoir and a love story about your relationship with your family and growing up on a family farm and your love of nature and your love of animals. And it just shines through that, that you know, in this, uh, in this story is not only a fabulous attorney's analysis who ran Bobby Kennedy's hog farm campaign, but a love story about life uh, that is very, very touching. So I, I just, it's an extraordinarily skillful book, and I, I just you. wanted to say Thank that. Thank you to very you. much. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you. And if that doesn't convince you guys to buy yeah, the book, yeah. I don't know what will. Yeah. <laughs> you have a quote on the back from Temple Grandin. Do you know her? Bill knows her. Oh, you know her. I, I um, have never personally yeah. met her. I've read some of her books. But so Bill Temple has... Grandin, for those of you who don't know, mm -hmm is autistic spectrum disorder person. She's uh, got Asperger's syndrome. And Bill, maybe you'd say a little about her because she's such an extraordinary figure. Well, she, she, I guess she was blessed with the ability to view livestock handling equipment or, or setups or what happens in the back of the house at a slaughterhouse. And she's been able to uh, uh, put herself in the animal's mind and share that and then as her I guess her legacy to that industry, she shared their thinking and anxieties with the slaughter industry. And for maybe not the right reasons, but the, the meat industry has now realized managing an animal's temperament prior to slaughter is critical to the meat quality. Consequently, 
uh, and again, not necessarily for the most the altruistic reasons that we would like to see animals treated well and humanely. They are beginning; they've gone really far in creating a the best possible environment for the live animals at the slaughterhouse. And that gift to the animals was really uh, came from uh, Temple Grandin. So she's she's quite extraordinary and uh, and uh, has has the ear of the industry throughout the world. Right. She can think like a cow. She can imagine how it is for a cow to go into the slaughterhouse. And she has this powerful vision that, yes, it's okay to eat uh, beef, but that this should be, it's almost Old Testament in its beauty. You know, in the Old Testament, the thing about very sharp knives and the slaughter process had to be just so, mm-hmm. so as to be humane. And the New Testament and the Quran and the Torah, right. all these, they all address these very issues. Yeah. Right. And she has this incredibly powerful vision of, yes. of how to do that, which is very beautiful. Nicolette, you, you touch on so many aspects of uh, why it's important to uh, change the whole paradigm of how we create uh, good meat. If you were to make a list of, say, the top five societal reasons why it's important to transform the meat industry, what would your top five be? Okay, well, a lot of people um, that I've worked with over the years, either environmental activists or um, food, because we work with people from all over the issue and all different perspectives. Some people are concerned about food quality. Some people are concerned about food safety. Some people are concerned about healthful, the healthfulness of the meat um, and the residues and the antibiotic resistant bacteria that are on the meat when you raise them in confinement, et cetera. Um, but for me, I have to say, and I definitely make this point in the book, um, that the number one issue is that if we consider ourselves to be a society that is truly concerned about humanitarian and just humane treatment of all living creatures, if we believe that we live that way in this country, then we absolutely cannot continue to have this be the way we produce our food. It's just, it's really um, inconsistent. It violates everything that I think Americans believe in. And I cite some research in the book about, you know, all these surveys are continually showing that, you know, 90 plus percent of Americans say that they think it's really important to treat animals humanely. And yet, those are the very same people that are buying the, the food that is coming from these really troubling operations, like I showed you the pictures of at the beginning of the, of the show. Um, so for me, I think just the number one concern is how the animals are treated, just from this, the standpoint of giving animals respect. Um, I, I think number two, um, I think that there are incredibly serious environmental problems with raising um, animals in continual confinement because you have um, so much manure in one concentrated place that you have a tremendous problem with air um, pollution, you have a tremendous problem with water pollution. The book goes into a lot of detail about this because there's been a lot of documentation of groundwater contamination. For example, North Carolina is the number two hog producing state. Iowa is number one and has been um, forever, pretty much. And in North Carolina, they've tested a lot of people's groundwater and found that 
around 10% of people had well water that was so contaminated they couldn't drink it. Um, these are people who've lived on their land for generations in some cases, and it's their only source of water. <laughs> and all of a sudden, when his big operation comes in next door and pollutes their own groundwater so that to the point where they have no longer any water for their home. I mean, that is so shocking. Um, so the environmental issues, I think, um, water pollution and air pollution are, are number two. I think number three would probably be the overuse of drugs, and especially antibiotics. Um, upwards of more than 90% of, um, of the pork that is, again, in the mainstream uh, of this country, um, the animals were continually fed antibiotics throughout their life. So what that means is that not only is their manure, which is going into the environment and the air contamination coming from the operations, laden with antibiotic-resistant bacteria, but it is also found on the meat at very high levels, and even FDA research has shown this. Um, so um, there's a huge problem with overusing antibiotics. In, um, at the beginning of, um, in 2001, the Union of Concerned Scientists estimated that the livestock industry was using eight times the total amount of antibiotics used for all human illnesses every year in their feeds, just in the feed, not even to treat animal illnesses, just in the feed. So um, there's massive antibiotic overuse, and that's, that is tremendously contributing to the loss of effectiveness of all of our antibiotics. So that would be probably my third priority. Well, that's a public health issue. Really. Yeah, Very, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Very okay, much. No. Um, and... Let's see. What would you? What would you? Why don't you throw? I've got a million, but what, how should I prioritize it? What would you put next? <laughs> uh, I, I wasn't thinking of that. Well, I'm, I'm relying upon you. Okay, I'll, I'll one say through five. Another one I would put high in the list is um, just the way it uh, is damaging rural America yeah. because mm -hmm. when you right you go into um, any of these rural communities and anywhere where the, where there are. Um, large confinement operations, animal confinement operations. There are tremendous, again, the water pollution and the air pollution issues, but there's just odor that's so overwhelming that people tell you, and I've met people all over the country that told me they couldn't sit on their front porch or they're hanging their laundry outside anymore because the odor was so extreme. Um, so um, there's, I cite research in the book about the loss of property values. They've gone, the properties are unsellable in some cases, um, and people just literally can't enjoy yeah, their own That's a good homes. list. We don't have to push for five. Okay, and, is that top four? <laughs> yeah, top four. Um, I, uh, the fifth one for me, is, yeah. uh, we might as well go there, yeah, is, yeah. is the... Uh, oh, babies definitely the, <laughs> the, the, the whole body of knowledge about how to raise animals traditionally and the research that's being done at land-grant university is totally funded by the pharmaceutical industry or egg heavy industry. Mm -hmm. And really, the, the, they were supposed to be the keepers of the knowledge of, of broad bandwidth of how to raise animals and animal husbandry techniques. And they really, that is just evaporating over time because of their narrow focus. So, um, Bill, tell us, I, I don't want to push this issue too hard, but you said I could ask you anything and I'd like to. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Nicolette does cover it in here. The, the story of why you decided, having built up Nyman Ranch as a national mm -hmm. and international brand, uh, it must have been a very trying decision for you to leave the company. It was, but in retrospect, it was certainly the right one and a great mm -hmm. relief. But what happens 
I don't know, some of you are probably involved in the growth of companies, but you, as a company grows, there's these kind of revenue thresholds that you cross, and really it's a, uh, and it's partly the, just the evolution of a, the institution, and there are things that just occur, but you, as you get to $10 million, well, first of all, I thought doing a million dollars was, once I, I thought that was, if we could get to a million dollars in revenue, then that would be unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And once you, you get to that, and you get to these other kind of levels, and then 10 million, and then it, and it, these things take on a life of their own. But you also, there's a, a whole different level of management expertise that is required as you get to 10 million, and then you get to 50 million in revenue. And, and uh, I'm basically a serial entrepreneur and uh, I'm not kind of an operation guy and I don't want to, uh, uh, although I was good at it at, and, and could have continued, but, but the, the ethos and the culture changes so much when you reach all these different thresholds. And my uh, desire and when we formed this was to, well, one, to support our own farm and ranch, but as it grew one farm at a time and one customer at a time, it was really about supporting farm people. So whereas the new management, and the new management comes in as you raise money to expand your business, so you take in capital and there's dilution occurs. So it, every time you take in money, there's strings attached to it and the ownership becomes diluted. So ultimately- So I, you didn't control the business at a certain at, point. At a certain point, I didn't yeah. control the business, but there was kind of a lot of common ground between the management until the last level of increase. And again, my, as the current management characterized, well, this wasn't a profitable business. I never intended for it to be a profitable mm -hmm. business. The, my goal was to make sure that the member farmers, this association, mm -hmm. that they were being paid a living wage and were able mm -hmm. to sustain their families. And so my goal was break even. Mm -hmm. And you create a brand that resonates throughout the country and create, with, through that you create trust and the trust leads to sales, and the sales, every time we ratchet up the sales, we were able to add other like-minded farm people. We never, ever reformed anybody on their farms. All we did was kind of roll up a group of like-minded agricultural people raising animals, and uh, that was my vision. And then as we began to take in investors and you need to respond to the investor's desire for a return on their investment. Uh, uh, the kind of the whole culture was changed to be such that the meat part of the business needed to be profitable. And in order for the meat side of the business to be profitable, you need to push back on the farmers to give up a little bit here, a little bit there. And pretty soon the, you know, the, the, the initial, uh, my vision was no longer intact. So what you're saying is that in your new incarnation, you're going to rebuild that vision of a community of like-minded farmers? Right, but we don't... The, farmers? Correct, ranchers? correct, but uh, uh, it, it's going to be much more a, um, a model that it's not going to be, it doesn't have to be big, so big is not necessarily beautiful. Right. It needs to be thriving and it needs to be financially viable and it needs to uh, produce the best tasting as well as most wholesome, environmentally correct, uh, sustainable family farms, all those you know, uh, brand attributes. But it, our goal is to create a, a, small, a small enterprise that's manageable 
and can stick to the ethos and values that it was founded upon and that other people can copy that. So mm -hmm. other like-minded farm groups in different geographies can copy it and respond to their local or locales to uh, rise to that occasion. And we think that this is going to be the wave of the future. And I think what people probably don't understand today and realize is that there's a huge overproduction of animal-based foods in the country, if not the world today, whether it's eggs, dairy, poultry, beef, pork, all of these things are in uh, uh, oversupply. Uh, and up until recently, the industry was saying that you have to raise food the way it was being raised industrially in order to meet the demand or feed the hungry mass of the world. But they can't say that anymore because now they're doing everything they can to reduce their production because it's, there's too much. And of course, all of this is being blamed on the economic tsunami that has hit us. And I believe that it's something very different. And I believe that people are beginning to connect the dots uh, it's, as a result of the, so many public conversations about healthcare, about environmental issues, about you know, people now realize that, you know, if you're gonna eat a lot of meat, you're gonna eat a lot of fat, you're gonna eat a lot of processed foods, We've got obesity and diabetes that are, are public health problems today that are basically breaking the bank. So I believe that people are connecting the dots, they're eating less meat, they're having fewer meat meal occasions is the jargon in the industry. And this is something that we're, in our, both of us are advocating for. If people would just cut their portion size in half, eat meat half as often, half as many times, that there'd be 25, 75% of the animal biomass on the planet today would just disappear. And I, I think that what we are witnessing, if you look at this holistically, when you see people buying smaller cars, people building smaller homes, and people, uh, I mean, I, I like to say that the era of gluttony, I think, is over, and that was precipitated by $5 diesel and all the economic challenges that we're facing today. So it's a different world today. It is. You know, one of the intersections between your work on, on Nyman Ranch and, and Commonweal is that um, we were at the center of the creation of the Keep Antibiotics Working Campaign, which is the national campaign to reduce the use of antibiotics in confined animal feeding operations. And it's one of the real success stories of the many campaigns that we've been actively involved with because it really has led to both substantial reductions and the movement forward of national legislation right. to reduce uh, antibiotic use. So it's yeah. fascinating that, you know, as neighbors, we've been yeah. working right. on these two aspects of this uh, toward the same goal. Well, yeah. it's interesting that the industry laughed at both Orville and I, uh, me, Orville and me, yeah, yeah thank you. <laughs> Pardon the pause. <laughs> when we started our campaign, you know, we, we talked about what we were doing and what came to us naturally and through our relationship with neighbors uh, who we were fortunate to have down the road. Mm -hmm. And the industry completely laughed at the idea of antibiotic and hormone-free. And, you know, that's a, these guys are out on the lunatic fringe. And now, of course, they're all using the same language. And that is, uh, it, it's just, you hear about it all the time. And... Finally, it's resulting in some uh, legislative action. That we feel that they're going to be laughing at us or are laughing at us today as well when we talk about pasture-raised and certainly when we 
launched the great tasting grass-fed beef, that they say this is not possible, and we're going to show that it is. Uh, one of the many things, Nicolette, that I found actually most striking in your book, you, you corrected a, uh, a misperception of mine, uh, which was I did think that the CAFOs, the confined animal feeding operations, were more economically efficient. Mm -hmm. And you actually make the strong case that they're not more economically efficient. I, I thought that, you know, I thought this was sort of one of the inevitable requirements of feeding a hungry world. In other right. words, I bought Efficiency. into right. the industry's mythology on this. Bill has already pointed out that there's a surplus of this product worldwide. Right. And, and you go beyond that and point out that actually the, the independent farm model um, is an economically viable model. Yeah, what was so interesting, when I started working on these issues about nine years ago, um, I also assumed that, you know, the, the current industrialized system was the inevitable result of kind of economic forces. And I started, um, and my father was a history professor, and I was very interested in learning the history. And I did learn the history, and I describe a lot of it in the book. Um, what I learned was that actually a lot of things were done by the federal government and um, and the, um, the, the land-grant universities that are part of the, the system of the, the extension services of the USDA, the, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, there was a lot that was done over the 20th century to encourage the increasing concentration and to encourage the confinement model. And in fact, it changed the economics a lot. And there were a lot of subsidies and a lot of other things that were done to create the sort of the rise of this model. Um, but I remember so distinctly uh, sitting in the office of Mike Duffy, who's an agricultural economist at Iowa State University in Ames, Iowa, and talking to him about the economics and, and saying, so is it economics that are driving, that have driven the industry in this direction? And he said, oh, God, no. It's all about power. The economics are better when you're dealing with less capital-intensive systems and you don't have to worry about waste, um, not even talking about externalized costs. We've been talking about pollution. We've been talking about antibiotic overuse. Those are externalized costs. Even without considering those, um, if you just look at the straight economics, quite a few studies have been done that show that it's more economical to use less capital-intensive systems and produce animals in lower density and more dispersed. Um, but our, our whole um, system of subsidies and our whole um, government system has directed agriculture in this way. The reason that's important is it shows that the alternative is possible. You it's know, we viable. It's yeah. viable and yeah. that the current system is not inevitable. It's the choice. It's a series of decisions that were made mm -hmm. by humans, not necessarily with all of our, you know, con our awareness that these things were mm -hmm. being done, but they were made... Um, decisions that were made that led to the current system. Now, another case that you make, and actually a, a, a recent piece in the New York Times, an op-ed piece in the New York Times, is that the analysis of the contribution of livestock to climate change is seriously flawed. Right. And so w could you encapsulate the core of that argument? And well, I was um, encountering in a lot of different venues that I move in. You know, I go to animal um, conferences and I have meetings with you know, policymakers and such. And I just kept hearing this idea over and over again that 18% of global warming gases are due to the livestock and poultry industry. And you've probably heard this figure before because this is being repeated over 
and over again. And I was really troubled by the way that figure was being used because that, that figure comes out of a United Nations report from 2000, uh, it was late 2006, and what, if you really look at the report, which I have done, um, it breaks it down into different gases and different livestock sectors and explains, uh, you know, it gives the detail behind that 18%. And more than 48% uh, of that number is from deforestation that is occurring in Brazil, Indonesia, India, Sudan, and other developing countries. It has absolutely nothing to do with the average American consumer, <laughs> okay? Especially if you're seeking out, you know, uh, 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 meat from a source that isn't part of the global industrial complex of meat production. If you're buying from a local uh, farmer or even a, a farmer like Nyman Ranch that's part of a network of traditional farmers, there's no connection between that and that deforestation. And if you look at each of the individual gases that are implicated in livestock production, there are three major gases, carbon dioxide, nitrous oxides, and uh, methane. If you look at each of them, um, again, the numbers, it, it really isn't about um, just all meat production. It's very specific depending on how you're doing it. And typically, the more industrialized model adds a lot more global warming. So there's, that nuance is very important and is just missing from the current discussion. So as we sort of review this, uh, um, you know, we begin to think about this whole picture that's emerging uh, from an ethical point of view about animal welfare and rising consciousness of animal welfare, from an environmental point of view, from an antibiotic resistance point of view, uh, from an impact on rural life, from uh, an efficiency point of view, from a climate change point of view, you begin to get quite an extraordinary list of ways in which the current industrial model of uh, agriculture really does not suit us very well, and it, and it seems to be one more example of a situation in which concentrated economic and political power mm -hmm. stops us from moving in a direction that is actually in the interest of health, the environment, animal welfare, you know, human health, and everything else. It's just Absolutely. quite a striking uh, yeah. list. Yeah. Quite a striking list. So I want to open this up now to uh, questions, and yes, you can start. Ooh. Yeah. I was wondering, out of that 18% of the 40% that applies, how much if you're not eating the meat, how many Americans do buy that deforestation meat? Like, is that at the well, same Well, there isn't, no, it, really there isn't. The deforestation, I mean, especially Brazil. Brazil is the leading, mm -hmm. uh, is the worst um, offender. Um, they raise beef that is, there, there are two main things that the deforestation is coming from. One is clearing directly for grazing, and even more than that is clearing for soybean fields. Now, the soybean is largely for livestock, but a lot of it is also used for human consumption. And, and I talk about it in the op-ed, um, for those of you that are interested in it, it's called the, the carnivore's dilemma. And you can just go on the New York Times and, and look it up. But um, It's also on your website, isn't it? I think... Not, so not. I can't yeah, remember. Okay. I'm kind of behind in updating, okay, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. um, it's, very, it's very easy to find on the internet. So you might want to read it. But um, but the um, I talk about in there the fact that the um, the uh, or the soy products you find in a typical grocery store include soybeans coming from those fields for deforested. Um, but not as much meat. 
Like, so well, the point is, the no, the, the meat that's raised in Brazil is for domestic consumption and for export to Europe. There's almost, in fact, I don't know, Bill, do you know the figure? There's almost no beef coming to this country from Brazil. It's but, a very small amount. But Brazil, the, the, a Brazilian company is the largest meat beef company in the world, and they're also the largest in the United oh. States. So they own oh. a lot of beef production in the U.S. But, and probably bring soy in. So it's kind of, ironically, there's probably more of a connection with the soy fields than with the actual. So, but the, And that's kind of part of the irony of the whole situation that I was pointing out in this piece. If you're um, someone who feels virtuous because you're not eating beef and you're eating a lot of soy, you may be doing more damage to the Brazilian rainforest than if you were eating beef that was raised in the United States. Especially if it's grass-fed beef. Yes, Saja. So I loved your book, and one of the things that you say in it, um, I think this was when you were looking at the uh, confined operations in North Carolina, was that the state legislature was so, I gathered it was so paid off by the big money interests of the CAFOs, and um, uh, I, I, I don't know who else, that they would not enforce EPA regulations right. and people continued to suffer. Right. So, is that changing? Um, one of the things that the book argues is that, and, and documents, I think. Now, that's not Miles. <laughs> that's another baby. <laughs> but let's be clear. Uh, but, uh, is that we actually have some pretty good environmental laws in this country, especially the Clean Water Act, but that they're widely unenforced, especially with respect to concentrated animal feeding operations. Um, and North Carolina is a great example because they had, um, you know, the number two, they were not only the number two hog producer, and this is still true today, but they're in the top five in the country for both chicken and turkey production as well, all in these confinement operations as well. Um, and at the time that we were um, doing this in 2000 and, and 2001, um, there were no concentrated animal feeding operations in the state of North Carolina that had a Clean Water Act permit, even though the law itself says that all of them need to have it. So there were thousands of um, facilities operating without these. Now, just very interestingly, Bill and I write a blog for The Atlantic, and I really wanted to write about this Clean Water Act issue for them, and I was complaining to the editor there that we're not paid for the blog, because <laughs> nobody is paid for blogging. Um, and he said, well, we love what you're doing. Let me offer you interns for research. And I just had an intern this last week helping me to research the question of how many Clean Water Act permits are being currently have been issued on concentrated feeding operations in the United States. And she's going state by state. And I was surprised. Um, it's a small percentage, but it's way more. At the time that we were litigating this at the beginning of the, the aughts, um, there were none in the entire country, and now there are in hundreds in each state that we're looking at. So, it's, so that's, a, that's a huge improvement. And the Obama administration has just announced that they're going to step up Clean Water Act enforcement, and they have specifically singled out CAFOs as one of the things that is going to get their attention. So there's, there's some hope on that front, I think, definitely. By the way, we've given up on getting a clean audio of this uh, conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case you wanted to know, it's surrender a, that concern. It's, it's a colorful <laughs> we're, we're, audio. We're having, we're having. Very clean. <laughs> okay, good. All right. Okay, great. <laughs> Other questions? Yes, somebody had their hand up right here. Oh no. Okay. Yes. Go ahead. I just wondered how much choice is left for small farmers. Now, I met an Iowa corn grower said he had to buy out his neighbor or he would have been bought out. 
Um, I hear this story again and again, the dairy guys, the feed costs. I mean, how much choices are left anymore for the small guy to do the right thing? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think there are uh, more and more, I, th I think through the current crisis, especially the dairy guys, because it's about overproduction. <laughs> and I think, uh, and they can't afford the feed because the price of the milk has gone down so much because of overproduction. But I think the people are more networked and there's this conversation going on within the industry. And I'm hopeful that public policy, which has driven everything in the wrong direction, and uh, the industry leadership, which has driven everything in the wrong direction, are now being held accountable for their decisions and directions in that uh, the, there's a lot of small people that, as you know, that are thriving through the farmer market networks, through you know direct marketing, and I'm just remain hopeful that as the public conversation continues about what you should be eating and the ease in maybe finding it and the fact that people are going to be eating less but better, that there's going to be a harmonic convergence and turn this trend around about small people being squeezed out. And in, in, to a certain degree, um, Sandy, I think that the... Um, the, the whole idea we're talking about, about grass-based um, farming, um, when you talk about dairies, for example, the grass-based dairy farmers that we know um, are, are suffering a lot less than the feed-dependent dairies because, because that fluctuation in feed prices barely affects them. Um, so, you know, it is, as Bill was talking about, $5 a, a, um, a gallon um, diesel. diesel and such. Um, there are things that I think are, are going to hurt everybody in agriculture for a period of time. But I think that um, a lot of it is pushing things more toward um, a more grass-based um, animal agriculture. And so I think that, um, as Bill said, with a growing consumer interest, I do think there's hope for... And most importantly, that... The the big operations can only survive if they can, the term used is externalize their costs. So you don't necessarily pay at the supermarket when you buy factory-raised meat, but you pay in tax dollars for water reclamation. You pay in property taxes for you know, because so much property has been devalued uh, in rural communities because of the smell and odor. And then there's the, the public health costs, which are enormous, and respite, and all this stuff has been documented. And it's documented and footnoted in Nicolette's book about respiratory diseases in uh, livestock workers, uh, University of Iowa, which battles Iowa State University in purpose. Uh, one is to, to support agriculture, and the other is a, uh, not bound by that kind of code. And the, you know the University of Iowa School of Medicine is is really all over the fact that children and workers in livestock confinement uh, facilities are suffering from asthma and all sorts of other diseases. And again, the the, da the data is supporting the kind of things that we are championing. We're going to take a few more questions, but before we do, there's a brief uh, break here. Uh, those of you who've been here before know that, uh, that uh, the new school survives uh, on an extremely small budget, and so part of our tradition is to pass the hat. And uh, we really uh, depend to a large degree on your 
belief that this is an important uh, community experience. So if you can spare a little change, uh, we'll pass the hat and I'll leave it with Harriet to keep it moving from place to place. And thank you for your ongoing support of our work. So a few more questions. Anybody else have? Yes, sir. Regarding your, uh, your turkey operation, uh, I totally understand where it would be natural to have dogs guard them, which is not true in nature. And I wonder if, it, if there's a possibility that through breeding over generations and generations of turkeys, you're breeding out a weariness that is natural in the bird that, in other words, I don't know if that matters. Are you breeding just towards the taste of the, of the, of the bird, or do you have concerns about the, the altering over generations of some of these natural traits? Yes, we do, and we're, we're, we're probably, well, one of the things, like Nicolette was explaining, how the, the leghorn chicken, or no, the, the broad-breasted white turkey, they can't, they've been selected for one trait, this big breast, so they can't breed. So we've been careful not to, we don't want to interfere with that. We want to try to maintain the, the breed integrity and the traditional heritage breeds. Uh, it's an interesting point, but the turkeys still, uh, if a, a heron flies over, they, they take action and they communicate. They spend the ones when they're outdoors, they, they're not like chickens, they don't come in at dusk. So they are still fly up in the trees. They roost in the trees on the roof. So, so they have, still have, have their places, wits. They you have places for them to roost, just like in nature. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but, and I would say that they don't. Um, they're not. Uh, complacent about um, the turkeys don't just loll around and figure the dog's going to take care of it. <laughs> They're very reactive to their environment. And actually, we were kind of amazed because the very first day that we put them outside, we noticed that, um, as Bill was saying, at that point, they were still pretty small and they were very sensitive to especially raptors, any raptors flying overhead. And they immediately would gather together they put their heads up, gather really tightly together, and go toward the dogs. So they weren't just assuming that everything was okay. They were working with the dogs. It's actually a beautiful, it's a, it's a beautiful system. The thing about the dogs um, that's so interesting, um, they've become a lot more popular in the United States to guard livestock and poultry because um, you don't have to, it's not about killing the predators. It's about keeping the predators away. It's a deterrence mechanism. And so um, you're basically through barking, especially, mostly barking. Working. You're just warding them off. And, um, and we have had 100% success with the dogs in guarding both goats and turkeys, um, in spite of the fact that we have a huge population of coyotes and bobcats on our ranch. So um, we consider it a really successful mechanism for protecting the, the livestock. What kind of dogs are you? We Does have, it what kind yes, they have to be, uh, an, as you can imagine, most dogs cannot guard birds. <laughs> Our dog, in fact, <laughs> is not very, you know, trustworthy with a bunch of the turkeys on her own. Um, but um, uh, the ones we have are specifically from, they're Turkish breeds. They're crosses of two different Turkish breeds that were raised to, to be with sheep. And uh, the one breed is called Akbash, which means white head in Turkish. And the other is called Anatolian, which is from the Anatolian area. And, um, uh, and they're, uh, they just by instinct do it. If they don't do it by instinct, you can't use the dog for that purpose because they, they can't teach them how to do it. Yeah, Great Pyrenees is a more well-known breed. But they look all... like small Great Pyrenees, basically. Yeah. Question right over here. I, I'd kind of just like to speak to this guy's um, concern about 
animals not being able to take care of themselves or breeding out these mm -hmm. kind of natural things. And going back to Temple Grandin's um, idea, she observed that when cattle are stressed, they'll mill around. Um, and so that was the um, basis for her. Um, they're just happily following the cow in front of them and going around and around and going to slaughter. They're not being traumatized and trampling each other and that kind of thing. And so I think that that harmonic conversion mm -hmm. thing um, is possible because it's really hard to breed out instincts. And that's what we're talking about. Thank you. Other comments? Yes, sir. I had a question about the, the financial side again. You mentioned it as a farm got bigger, you had to look at a different level of economics. When you think about the power and the subsidies that come to the agribusiness in general, uh, when you talk to farmers about entering into the collective process, how much is, is that other number that they can't be a part of? That, that, that subsidy from the government and from other parts of the system that if you're going to do things... Well, some of it's all... All the, the Nyman Ranch farmers in the hog side of the operation raised corn and soybean. So they were all uh, players in the subsidy, albeit small. So they did get crop guarantee. Whatever was available to corn and soybean growers and other monocultural crops, they benefited from. But there's a lot of indirect subsidies which are, are, are kind of more insidious. For example, if the grants that are available for uh, manure digesters you know, cogeneration facilities. To have a manure digester and, and capture the methane and use it for fuel to run a generator and produce electricity to be used on the farm or run a meter backwards, you really have to have a large concentration of animals. So small farmers are, are, are punished. Well, actually, it's not a solution for them. And whereas the uh, government uh, people in, in leadership roles might think that this is a great way to handle manure, to co-generate with it, but and let's subsidize that, but the only people that are really el eligible for those subsidies are the ones that have a huge amount of manure because it's a problem for them. So, based, and so there's a lot of money flowing towards large operations mm -hmm. as, and, and because they have a manure problem, and this may be a, a, a palatable solution. It looks good at first glance, but it's really regressive against the traditional farmers who are not creating the problem. But I also cite research in my book that the federal um, commodity subsidies of the grains, as Bill was talking about at the beginning of his comments, um, that larger operations benefit a great deal more from those subsidies. So kind of all of the major federal farm subsidies, as well as um, what Bill was just referring to, as there's a little bit of money in the farm bill every every time it's re-appropriated. Uh, um, a very small percentage of it is goes for environmental programs. And historically, that was for things like pasture restoration and things. And about four or five years ago, um, there was actually a, a political negotiation that made it available for manure um, projects, um, dealing with manure, um, big manure lagoon problems. And that was really, that was a subsidy for big, um, big uh, agribusiness operations because they were the ones that have these big um, lagoons. And so for the first time, just that little tiny bit of money that was in the federal farm bill for environmental projects started going to the big agribusiness operations and especially for concentrated animal operations. So uh, before, there's a huge problem with the federal money. Before we take more questions, we're just about to wind up, but I want to ask how many people here are personally involved in either 
ranching or you know gardening at a serious level or agriculture i'm just curious who here uh-huh so this group of folks in the back here i'd love to know what you all are involved with and and what brought you here today we're two groups okay and and you had your hand up earlier did you still have a question oh, just when you showed the picture of the red truck i just wanted to comment we had uh a red Ford for a couple of years, and so whenever we'd come out here to go to the beach, all the cows would come over to dance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're not. Um, the other thing that's amazing, I mean, people, you know, we talk about a lot of times about the intelligence of the animals. A lot of times people think um, farm animals, especially cattle, um, people often think they're stupid, and we don't agree with that at all. They not only can visually identify um, our vehicles, but they can identify them by sound. So, um, and you know, cars will drive by on Mesa Road all day, and they'll just stand there. And then by the time we come from the house up to the top of our driveway, they will have gathered by the gate because they know the sound of our specific truck. So it's quite amazing, actually, what they learn and what they're able to remember. So, do you all? And for the other question, yeah. uh, we, uh, me and Melissa over here. Uh, at least three acres from the uh, bee pud, and we have dairy goats. Um, currently, seven goats. Yeah, wonderful, great. Whereabouts is that? Yeah. Um, below the uh, spray fields. Um, okay. Parallel to Mesa Road on the other side of the eucalyptus. Uh huh. Oh, great. I wanted to ask you guys about uh, pick your brains on livestock guardian dogs. Uh huh. Well, we had a thousand goats last year on the place and we had f there were five dogs and we didn't lose any to the coyotes uh, and that was one of the dogs that chased Michael down the road <laughs> but they're extremely good dogs I mean they, our main thing is finding uh, a little bit older dog because we can't yeah. be on site and dealing with the puppy and finding a dog that's been educated they're, they're a lot of work and I was reading on the USDA website about them before we got them and one of the things they said is that your time you have to be prepared that you're going to be shifting a lot of your daily time is going to go toward the dogs um, because you do have to teach them to stay with the flock and or the herd or whatever you're you know they're guarding. Um, but feel but, free to contact us and we'll. Yeah, we've we are we are very can. favorably impressed with it. We have also used llamas. Some of you know that the goats that were here this past season had llamas guarding them, and that worked very well as well. So there's a number of different ways to do. I've heard llamas have trouble with uh, dogs. Right, you can't have them together. We use cattle dogs. Yeah, you can't, uh, you can't use dogs and llamas together. <laughs> well, Nicolette, Han Nyman, and Bill Nyman, thank you for being with us at the new school. Thank you. Really <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>